0: Never in the history of our law have we ever punished somebody because they carry
1: a virus. With HIV, we can prosecute it or we can prevent it. You can't do both.
0: Hey boy, I see
2: you looking at me. You better come over and talk to me. Hey fam. Welcome back to another episode of Between the Bills, a reproductive justice podcast from Pulp Magazine. Hey boy. I'm Emily Rose Thorne. I'm a journalist and I live in Macon, Georgia. I'm bringing you the story of reproductive rights in the southeastern United States through investigative reporting, narrative work, and audio storytelling. We're back after a little winter hiatus and we're starting off 2020 with a topic that doesn't get anywhere near the amount of attention that it should. The role of the legal system in the HIV-AIDS crisis. Since the initial outbreak in the 1980s, the United States government has denied acknowledgement, funding, treatment, and prevention of the disease, and wrote laws about what HIV-positive folks can and cannot do, specifically due to its association with the LGBT population.
0: The in-between.
2: Today, despite treatments that can seriously reduce the risk of transmission, these same policies remain intact. Discriminatory laws that criminalize HIV-AIDS are targeted attacks on the queer community, particularly men who have sex with men and transgender women. This happens nationwide, but it's most dramatic here in the southeastern United States, where a lack of comprehensive sexual education, social conservatism, and increased poverty exacerbate other contributing factors. Here's Cecilia Chung of the Transgender Law Center, speaking in a 2016 video by the HIV-AIDS advocacy group, CERO Project
0: in other laws, assault or bodily harm, we look at intent, why somebody would commit those crimes, and we talk about malice. But that's not the nature of HIV law. It is simply state that if you don't disclose your status, you are violating the law and you're punishable to up to 25 to 30 years. When you look at the sentencing of someone who did not disclose the HIV status, it's worse than somebody who killed another person driving.
2: In 2019, 34 states and two U.S. territories maintained anti-HIV statutes. These laws disproportionately affect gay and bisexual men, transgender folks, and queer people of color, as well as other disenfranchised communities, including low-income, sex workers, and people who inject drugs—those who are most likely to contract HIV. The laws criminalizing HIV-AIDS presume that those living with the infection willfully transmit it, even in situations where transmission is impossible. Grace bodies of research collected and analyzed since 2010 demonstrate that it is impossible for an HIV positive person who is on treatment and has completely suppressed the virus to transmit it to their sexual partners even in the absence of any other forms of protection About 60% of the HIV-positive population has managed their disease to the point of being undetectable. People who have HIV that hasn't become undetectable can still protect their partners by wearing condoms. And people who are at risk for contracting it, those who don't have HIV but who have sex with someone who does, for instance, can take PrEP to help prevent transmission.
3: You believe!
2: PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, is an HIV prevention method administered as one of two brands of a daily pill released in 2012. The medicine can lower the chances of HIV contraction by about 92 to 99% in a person considered at high risk for contraction. It basically stops HIV from taking hold and spreading throughout the body, so the buildup of antiretrovirals can stop the virus from entering cells and replicating, so the person taking PrEP remains HIV negative. Despite the stunning effectiveness of PrEP, there are actually opponents to its use. The practice has been criticized by people who say it might make folks more cavalier about the disease because they think it can replace the proper use of condoms. PrEP is meant to be taken in addition to proper condom use and it can't prevent other sexually transmitted diseases. But this is just another take based on stigma against those who are HIV positive, that they're somehow all sexually reckless. Attitudes like that allow for outdated and discriminatory criminalization laws. HIV-positive people can be tried and imprisoned if accused of withholding their status from a potential sexual partner. And it's really difficult for them to prove in a court whether they did or didn't disclose their status, so they end up facing charges more often than not. HIV-specific criminal charges have been filed in the United States more than 1,500 times since the first HIV-specific laws were introduced in 1986, with approximately 411 arrests and prosecutions for HIV exposure between 2008 and 2019. Worldwide, UNAIDS estimates that people in prison are on average five times more likely to be living with HIV compared with adults who are not incarcerated. Recent incarceration is actually associated with an 81% increase in HIV risk. These laws lead to the prosecution of HIV-positive people for acts of consensual sex, including mutual masturbation, as well as for sharing needles, spitting on someone, or biting someone. But like I said, some of these acts have no risk of transmitting the infection. Wish it was easy every day. But despite the science and the facts, some states, including southeastern ones like Georgia, Tennessee, North and South Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, Virginia, and Kentucky, penalize actions such as spitting or biting with up to 10 years in prison. Never asking why,
0: I'm always in so many pieces. And it-
2: Louisiana, Tennessee, Ohio, South Dakota, Washington State, and Arkansas even require HIV-positive people who've been convicted of any of these to register as sex offenders. Other states, including California, apply increased penalties for sex crimes like rape or assault if the defendant had HIV. Here's Sean Strub, Executive Director of the CERO Project, in the 2016 video we heard from earlier.
1: If someone was charged with prostitution and they also had HIV, it was aggravated prostitution with a greater penalty. If someone spit on someone, right, spitting on people is not very attractive behavior, probably appropriate for some sort of misdemeanor assault or something, but if it's someone with HIV who spit on someone, they would make the charges much more serious.
2: In 1996, an Atlanta man living with HIV was charged with aggravated assault with intent to murder for attempting to bite a corrections officer. The Court of Appeals of Georgia considered it reckless conduct and said, quote, The evidence authorized the jury to find that by attempting to bite the officer, knowing that he was HIV infected and had AIDS, the defendant consciously re- disregarded a substantial and justifiable risk that his act would harm the officer or endanger his safety. You never this is far from an isolated incident. Multiple people living with HIV have been prosecuted under aggravated assault charges in Georgia for similar acts of biting, spitting, and allegedly withholding their status from partners. Here's Edward Castro, who was sentenced to 31 months in prison for non-disclosure, speaking in the Sarah Projects video.
3: I've been living with HIV for 21 years. I was born with it. I'm late starting college because I was in prison for two years for not disclosing my HIV positive status before having sex, even though I had an undetectable viral load and didn't infect anyone. I hear a lot of people say HIV criminalization is complicated, but I got what seems to me to be a simple question. Why did I go to prison for fear of something that no one has proven has ever happened?
2: Monique Moray was a private first class at Fort Jackson and contracted HIV from her ex-husband while pregnant with their child. They could care less
0: about who I was as a person. All they looked at was, she's HIV, what can we do to prosecute her? As a mother, just finding out that I was HIV positive, carrying a child that could have been HIV positive, so many thoughts was going through my head. Why did I get infected? Why did my ex-husband did this to me when I was a good wife? I felt like HIV was a complete monster that entered my life. I ended up having unprotected sex with a soldier in the military did not know how to tell him that I was HIV positive at the time because I, I was afraid of how he was going to look at me, I was afraid that how he would judge me and, and um, the only thing I could say is you, you need to get a condom.
1: No one should ever knowingly put another person at risk of harm, but the ability to disclose isn't quite as simple as that.
0: They're feeling afraid, they're feeling ashamed, and they're hurt. They don't know what the future holds and what it means to live with HIV. That's a scary place to be. How do I even disclose my status? How do I do this? How do I get those those words out my mouth, HIV? They told me I was looking at eight to 12 years. I felt like I I went out and killed a whole bunch of people. They made me feel like that.
2: Moray was also charged with non-disclosure, but these stories are nothing new. At the start of the initial AIDS crisis in the 80s, policymakers considered repealing sodomy laws, which prohibited anal and oral sex between consenting adults and were most often used to criminalize sexual behaviors between LGBT individuals. A lot of them flat out refused to repeal sodomy laws because they didn't want to be implicated in the spread of AIDS. The gay rights movement petitioned the federal government to allocate resources to address the crisis, but politicians avoided getting involved to protect their reputations rather than take action to save queer lives. Plus, nobody wanted to be the politician who talked about sex, especially the ultimate taboo of queer sex. Ronald Reagan waited years to address the crisis to the American people. He also explicitly discouraged the US Surgeon General from discussing HIV and did not allow the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to list it as a top priority. This is a 1982 press conference where journalist Lester Kinsolving asked Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, about Reagan's reaction to HIV being labeled an epidemic. Offing was right. It was a joke to them. By this time in 1982, 863 people had died from HIV-AIDS, and the deaths of these people, primarily gay men, amounted to little more than a joke to the President of the United States and his cabinet. President Bill Clinton followed suit, also discouraging the Surgeon General from speaking on the issue. It wasn't until 1990 that the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act was passed, the first federal program focused specifically on providing HIV care and treatment services to low-income people living with HIV who were uninsured. However, the rate of funding for this program, which is still the largest of its kind, has not increased since 2009, despite more people than ever applying to take advantage of it. The initial reaction to HIV still has lingering repercussions. Here's Strub.
1: More women die of cervical cancer every year from strains of HPV, human papillomavirus, than die of AIDS from HIV. But we don't have HPV specific statutes out there because it isn't stigmatized in that unique way that HIV is.
2: Let's talk about the South. HIV criminalization is a nationwide crisis, but laws that penalize the HIV positive population are most common and most destructive in the Southern United States. For context, the South represents the highest regional prevalence of HIV AIDS in the nation. So the South only has 37% of the country's population, but Southern states contribute half of HIV positive Americans. There are also disparities across racial lines. In Georgia, between 55 and 61% of HIV AIDS diagnoses involve men who have sex with men, and black men comprise 63% of cases, despite black people only making up 28% of the state population. A black man who has sex with men who becomes sexually active by age 18 in Atlanta has a 60% chance of contracting HIV by age 30. In a video for The Guardian in 2018, Atlanta HIV prevention specialist Tori Cooper explains why black gay men are more likely than white gay men to contract HIV.
3: So a black gay man in the South, his chances of getting HIV are about one out of two. For white gay men, it's closer to around one out of 11, generally, mm-hmm. I'm generalizing here. And sometimes that includes access to stuff like PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and that's for people who are HIV negative. It's a pill that they take once a day that keeps them HIV negative, it keeps them from getting HIV. And what we're finding is, um, as PrEP continues to roll out, There are a lot more people who are white who may not be as high risk who have access to PrEP. We've had 35 years of messaging for white gay men, they've gotten it or at least they're getting it and they're far ahead than, than everybody else. I think for a long time people have simply not cared when we talk about even the first initial cases, we forget that there were black people suffering and dying at the very beginning as well. And so we became an afterthought even from the beginning.
2: Poverty adds another level to the epidemic. According to the CDC, poverty is the most significant factor contributing to HIV health inequalities. Heterosexual people living below the poverty line were twice as likely to contract HIV than those living above the poverty line. And LGBT citizens are more likely to live in poverty than heterosexual people. Nine of the 10 poorest states in the nation are located in the south, and another four rank in the top 20. All of these disparities compound to create disproportionately high levels of poverty among queer southerners. According to the Williams Institute, 35% of the queer population in the United States lives in the south, where they are more likely to lack employment protections, earn less than $24,000 a year, and struggle to pay for health care. Queer folks and southerners are the two least likely groups to have health insurance. So more new HIV infections come from the south than any other region in the country. But there are also poverty disparities across racial lines. Black Americans are disproportionately represented in low income communities with a poverty rate twice that of white folks. Discrimination in healthcare and a lack of cultural competency among medical professionals reduces the likelihood that black Americans will access prevention. Here's Guardian reporter Leah Green
0: but for the most marginalized communities a lack of support can have dangerous consequences for black trans women the hiv rate is also one in two but their risk of homelessness drug addiction and prostitution is higher and each of these make it harder to access the hiv care they need
2: green talked to pearl a black trans advocate for women experiencing homelessness in atlanta's piedmont park She does weekly outreach giving out gift bags consisting of condoms, lube, makeup, and other stuff.
3: I took it upon myself to do something like that because I'm also, hum- I was also homeless. Yeah. I'm living with HIV. So it's, I was down there with them at one point.
0: Were you in this park?
3: Yes. I was on drugs. I was out there prostituting, doing whatever it took to survive.
0: What do you think it is about being trans yeah. as well as black that makes people more likely to end up as homeless?
3: Are you you dealing with HIV? Being trans, being black, you got all them strikes against you. A lot of these trans was damaged from their homes, parents putting them out at young ages, and I know it's gotta be a deep down hurt.
2: Poverty also reduces the likelihood that individuals with HIV can access treatment or criminalizing HIV AIDS. Treating it like a crime leads to increased misinformation, fear, and stigma surrounding the disease, which deters folks from seeking testing to know their status. HIV-positive people also run the risk of having their status disclosed on their behalf, since healthcare providers are sometimes required to disclose HIV status to prosecutors, and filing charges leads to public disclosure of a person's status to their community, even if they are innocent of the charge that they face. Here's Cecilia Chung of the Transgender Law Center again. One of the unintended consequences of the law is instead of providing a
0: safer environment where people feel comfortable to get tested, it perpetuates the stigma and the fear, which drives more people underground and into the shadow.
2: The issue with deterring people from knowing their status is that far too many Americans with HIV are already unaware that they have it. Out of 154,000 people living with HIV, 14% did not know that they had it, so they couldn't control the virus or take steps to prevent transmission. People under 25 years of age are the least likely to know their status, but the most likely to contract HIV. Additionally, only about 18% of the people for whom PrEP could be beneficial have a prescription. Coverage is especially low among young people, black Americans, and Latinos. HIV criminalization reinforces the notion that HIV positive individuals are dangerous and need to be identified, tagged, reported, regulated, controlled, and incarcerated. People living with HIV are often required to register sex offenders for allegedly withholding their status from partners, which further marginalizes them by increasing barriers to housing and employment opportunities. In addition, there is no evidence that suggests criminalization reduces risk behaviors or rates of HIV in any region of the country. It's just a form of systemic oppression and violence against the LGBT population, not a system of policies interested in protecting public health. Let's hear from Sean Strub once more.
1: As long as there are laws that make criminals out of people with HIV, discourage people from getting tested for HIV, we'll continue to be dealing with an epidemic that we're unable to get under
2: control. Hey, boy, I see you looking at me. The best way to help combat the HIV epidemic here in the South is with your financial support. Hey. You can send money to plenty of local organizations like Someone Cares Atlanta, a clinic providing everything from STD screening, to prep, to hormone therapy, to counseling, to assistance with opioid abuse. There's also the Georgia AIDS Coalition, a nonprofit providing similar services as well as advocacy tools, and Live Forward, a group in my hometown of Athens, Georgia, helping to provide housing, health management, and HIV prevention services to the most vulnerable communities. You can find links to all of these organizations in the show notes on Pulp's website. Of course, you can also support your local Planned Parenthood or community health center, which can also assist patients who have or are at risk for contracting HIV. That's it for episode five of Between the Bills. In March, we're gonna talk about the maternal health crisis in Southern states, especially here in Georgia. Thank you to Gamis for sharing their music with Between the Bills. You can check them out on Spotify at G-A-Y-M-O-U-S. If you're new to Between the Bills, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and online at Pulp Magazine at medium.com pulpmag. You can get a taste of our other content, like a weekly playlist, personal essays about sex, sexuality, and reproductive justice, and plenty of other stuff for and of the body. If you love what you see, give us a follow on Medium, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's worth the squeeze.